Hey, and welcome to Game Talk episode 27. I'm your host, Evan Mion. Today, I'm joined by Connor. Hey, guys. And Michael. Hello. And the first thing we're going to talk about today is a game called Perspectrum. Um, this is a special game, especially for those of us on this show, because it is a game created by none other than Connor Haynes, one of our co-hosts here on the podcast. Hey, guys. So, Connor, you've been working on Perspectrum for a while now, and would you say it's finally, like, getting near, like, release stage? Yeah, I'd say, um, I mean, yeah, we've been planning to release this summer for a really long time. And, um, I don't know, we've been working on content for a long time, and I finally took a step back and let the rest of the team finish up content while I started polishing everything. And the difference that's made is, like, incredible. I mean, I, I like, it just... I don't know. Every time I fire it up, I, I don't feel like it's a game I made anymore. Like, it feels so, I don't know. It feels very professional, almost. I mean, not almost. Kind of, yeah, it feels very professional. Like, it feels like something I could see myself buying on Steam. It's interesting to think that, like, in order to truly see, like, significant progress on it, you had to kind of, like, let it go. Right. Yeah. It, uh... uh yeah. I mean, games are a collaborative effort. I mean, very, very rarely do you see like video games get made by only one person, and when they do, they're they're an enormous effort that spans years. Right, and uh, we're a pretty small team. It's uh, originally it was me and a friend of mine named Jake, uh, but the current team is me, uh, my actually Michael's sister Gabby, a woman named Katie, and. Uh, my brother, Jonathan Harrell, doing music, and Jordan Hallow, who's been on the show before, handling the business side of things. Nice. So let's actually just jump into Perspectrum itself. So what is Perspectrum? So uh, Perspectrum is a puzzle platformer. It's, uh, it's a game where you play as someone we've just kind of named the Tall Stranger, the tall stranger doesn't know why he's there or what he needs to do, but it uh it kind of quickly becomes apparent that you need to collect these little collectibles that we call spirit fragments to progress through the game. Uh, the game has five dungeons you're going to clear by solving these puzzles that involve changing the element of the world around you uh, in different ways. So like water becomes lava, becomes ice, becomes acid, things like that. I guess this is a good time to mention, is that where the game's name comes from? It is, yeah. It's a, it's a very creative name, so if maybe you could give a little bit of backstory on how you came up with that. Right, so obviously I came up with the mechanic first before I came up with anything else. Um, it was just a tiny little project I was doing to learn shaders. And uh, Jake actually thought it had potential to be a full game, so we started working on it. And uh, he came up with the name Perspectrum, which is kind of like a change of perspective and also, a lot of the game comes from color changing, so the color spectrum was kind of important to us in the name. So, like, the theme of this game was the whole, like, perspective changing, like, shader swap mechanic, right? And you sort of build outward from there? Right, yeah. We came up with that mechanic very early, like, before we even had, like, we had that mechanic before we even were going out to make a game, basically. That's really cool. Like I've found definitely just uh, looking into how games are made and stuff, games that like hone in on a mechanic or like construct their construct everything around one single thing are, are generally more focused and more enjoyable experiences. So it's good to hear that uh, Perspectrum has that going for it. 
Right. So we have that we have that one mechanic along with like basic platformer mechanics, and we try to kind of hone in. And each dungeon tries to kind of take a different twist on that one mechanic and uh, explore it from a different angle. So definitely an element of uh, puzzle solving, an element of exploration. Uh, you mentioned you play as the Tall Stranger. That's a very evocative name. So is there like lore built into this game? Uh, there is. Um, I would say the lore is probably more visual, but there is some dialogue to kind of give you a sense of the world. There are some like kind of some of the places you explore have little stories. Um, it's all very, you kind of have to piece it together yourself. Uh, the story of the game. I don't want to give too much away because uh, I think Gabby has done a very good job of storytelling uh, through her art, but uh, nice. I think it's interesting. I wouldn't say it's uh, the, it, it doesn't feel like the most important part of the game to me. Uh, I think it takes the backseat to mechanics a little bit. Right. But it is there and it is very enjoyable in my opinion. I think some of the some of the scenes are somewhat evocative to me. I think the combination of the music and the art really gives you a sense of place in some of the areas you'll visit. And then you kind of figure out their story and why things are the way they are and it's interesting. So there's a very particular type of game that does that sort of thing with lore that you just described. I'm thinking of Dark Souls, of course. Was Dark Souls an inspiration for this game? And maybe you could just talk about general inspirations for this game. Um, I've had a lot of inspirations for the game. I would say more... Um, so Dark Souls actually, for that, that form of storytelling, takes its inspiration from Metroid. And I would say we got a lot of inspiration from Metroid. I definitely, for the later half of my puzzle solving, I was I was playing uh, Metroid or I was playing Super Metroid at the time, and it it gave me some breakthroughs on how I wanted to do puzzles, how I wanted to incorporate backtracking a little bit in an interesting way. Metroid's not really a puzzle game, so incorporating backtracking in a puzzle game, uh, I looked at Zelda a little bit, and um, what okay. I took away from Zelda was kind of I wanted you to now this isn't true of every dungeon. But uh, some of the dungeons I wanted you to have to think of as one big puzzle more than a series of small puzzles. So you have to like, you're not just solving the puzzle in the room. You have to think of the rest of the dungeon to contextualize the room you're in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Just jumping back into the mechanics for a little bit. I know how important it is for any kind of platformer to get the feeling of jumping just right. How would you describe the jump in this game? I know that's a very granular question, but... I think um, that's I would an say it's thing to talk about. I think it's very easy to control because I'm not really going for difficult platforming for the most part. So is it like floaty? Is it? I would call it fairly floaty. Um, I took a lot of inspiration from Mario for that Super Mario Three, which has a pretty floaty jump in my opinion. Okay. It um you definitely float at the peak of your jump. <laughs> it's I don't want to get too into the specifics, but you do not fall very quickly from the peak of your jump. You can hover there for what is in context a, a relatively long time. Okay. You know, it doesn't feel like you're jumping up and floating like Princess Peach and Smash Bros or anything, but like you can target where you're going to land pretty carefully. Okay. Yeah. Um, that kind of sounds like the jump in Hollow Knight somewhat. J- that's just a recent example because I've been playing that. The jump's very controllable because it, it's sort of delayed at the top. Right. Yeah. I had to go. Uh, I was actually early in playtesting. I got a lot of complaints about my jump not being good enough. So I sat down and spent probably 40 hours uh, just on the jump. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Uh, 
playtesting, you've had a beta or two for this game, right? And you've gotten lots of feedback. How much of that feedback would you say you incorporate in the game? Um, that's a complicated question, I guess, because a lot of it. I'm going to say a lot of it, maybe even most of it, because a lot of feedback I've received uh, kind of was in line with plans we already had for the game, but it just wasn't ready for the beta. Right. Um, some of the feedback I've gotten, people were more interested in the story than I thought, I guess. Like, our locations were already kind of evocative, but people wanted more of that. Like, it, yeah, it got them curious very quickly, I guess. We got some very f- good feedback on people being made curious by our, by our scenes. So, we kind of wanted to explain things further, and that actually encouraged me to put more of a story, because originally I didn't care about that very much. Um, Interesting, yeah. I actually had a friend who is very into platformers sit down and help me refine the jump a lot. Uh, okay. That was some pretty important feedback. Um, I've had to change the tutorial quite a few times based on feedback about not really getting the controls, uh, which is useful. You know, I don't want to call anybody out because it was, you know, I, that was a failure for me designing it wrong. But I think it's very self-explanatory now. I have not received any of that feedback in a while. Right. We've talked before on this podcast about tutorials and how, like, basically what makes a good tutorial, like, does your tutorial, like, how is your tutorial incorporated into the game? Does Do the mechanics just naturally teach the player, or how does that work? Uh, I like to think they do. Um, I don't, I never tell you, in the game, I never tell you to change the element of a room. I never tell you to do that. It's just, uh, I kind of get you to the point where it's the only thing you can do. Personally, I think that's a good thing. And I uh, I think most people who are into games figure it out. But unfortunately, because of my my position, I end up having a lot of testers who are not familiar with games. And uh, I kind of try to... It's hard to look at that and decide. Like, I, I want them to be able to play the game, but I don't want my tutorial to be annoying to my core audience, which is going to be gamers. Right. So uh, I am forced to give up a dialogue box at the beginning telling you what the controls are just because um, it's a PC game and there's too many buttons to not list out your controls. Okay. You know, uh, for a non-gamer at least. Uh, they are rebindable and everything, obviously, a PC game. But right, I, I don't think my tutorial's in your face too much. I think it's more like you play and by the time you get to the core of the game, you've pretty much got a handle on things. Nice. That's good to hear, personally. So just kind of a personal question. What is your favorite part about this game? Like, what do you have the most pride in? Or I guess those are two separate questions. What 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 do you have the most pride in that's in the game? And then what's your favorite part of the game? Uh, I think the thing I have the most pride in is probably... God, that's a tough one. I mean, really, I just like that I'm finishing a game. Yeah, that's, that's pretty huge. That's of this length. I like... I think it's how cohesive it is. I think it's the way the music and the art and everything kind of meshes together, I think is really good. And uh, I'm really proud of that. I'm also just kind of, I think I like the aesthetic the most is what I'm going to say, because that kind of includes all that. And I think uh, our shader art and stuff necessitates a really strict color palette, which I think is really interesting. And I right. like that a lot. That's probably my the thing I'm most proud of about the game. So just from a perspective of playing it, what's your favorite part of the game? Uh, my favorite part of the game is probably the dungeon I designed the most of. 
Uh, I'm going to say that's the Catacombs. It's the hardest dungeon, probably. Okay. Wasn't that the uh, dungeon that my sister broke? She did a couple of times. I mean, that's all of them. All the dungeons have been broken at different points. The Catacombs kind of require you to think about... It's the dungeon I was thinking of when I said you have to think of the whole place instead of just individual rooms. Which does inherently make it very difficult because, uh, I don't know, the rest of the game demands that of you a couple of times, but the catacombs ask you to do it a lot. And so, so the that- dungeons, you've mentioned the dungeons a few times. Um, when you say dungeon, the first thing that jumps to mind is Zelda for me. Are, are, are these dungeons Zelda-esque or how would you describe them? Um, so sort of, there's no bosses or anything. There's no combat in the game because that's not really the point. The game's more collect-a-thon-y. I would say almost like uh, Super Mario Odyssey. Because mm-hmm. uh, you're not required to collect all the collectibles to beat the game. There's a lot of them around. Each dungeon is more like an area full of collectibles that has a theme. And you have like it has a certain set of puzzles and mechanics that are only in that dungeon. So in that sense, it's Zelda-like. Right. And it's also kind of a way of segregating difficulty, you know. The library is fairly easy. The cistern is in the middle. The catacombs are the hardest before the summit, which is where you're tested on everything to see if you can, you know, beat the game. Okay. So is there, you said no combat. So is there no health? Can there, you There's die? no health. You can die. There are hazards uh, that can kill okay. you, uh, like lava, uh, acid, stuff like that. Um, there are even a couple of, I'm hesitant to call them enemies because uh, sometimes you're tasked to use them to help you complete an objective but there are npcs i guess would be the term i don't know there are characters that you interact with that help you get through the world or try to stop you from getting through the world gotcha okay just going back to the development of the game for a minute uh as we all know on this show and hopefully everyone knows developing games is really hard and very time consuming uh what was the hardest part in the development of this particular game? Probably just how much time I've had to give up to develop it. I've actually stopped a couple of different times. So this this game's been in development for two years. The uh, The first commit was the 16th of May in 2016. Uh, so I would say that's when it okay. started. And uh, First code commit yeah. for, for people who aren't savvy with but, that. Um, definitely a couple of times. There's probably been at least a year in there that I just wasn't working on the game at all because it got to be too much and I just put it down. Because um, right, because you're juggling school, yeah, school well. and work on top of developing this game, right. and uh, it's just a lot. I uh, it's been a really long time since I got to set, sit down and like play a video game through. I don't know, and that's something important to me. It's also hard to make time. Like my family needs time for me, my girlfriend needs time from me, and that's probably the hardest part is finding the time to do all this. That's it's interesting that you say that because I've heard that sentiment so many times in various interviews where developers like say, "Oh, I like literally haven't played a game in like yeah. two years, so I can't wait to play this really big game that came out last yeah. year." And there's it's just like, and so that's what sucks, right? Because that's that's what takes the hit. The last game I played through was Super Metroid, and that took about four or five hours, I think. But like, I haven't played Doom 2016. I haven't, um, you know, it's just stuff like that. Stuff I've missed. I, uh, stuff that you want to play but you just haven't but gotten that's, to yet your gaming time is what takes the hit you know like i'm not gonna take time away from my girlfriend because i want to work on this i'm not gonna take time away from my family because those are like important you know emotional health needs basically right so 
Real game developers take time from everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do you think Skyrim got out on time? <laughs> I just kind—I kind of refuse to do that. that you know, I don't want to go home to my kids. Michael, Michael does have a point though. Like you, you hear these stories in the in the game development industry of just how crushing it is for other aspects of people's See, lives. I refuse to do that. That's uh, that's probably why this game has taken so long. Is because me and Gabby both, since it was the two of us for the most most of the development, it was the two of us. Um, we just kind of both weren't ready to just destroy our social lives to make this game. You know, it was kind of on the back burner a lot of the time and we'd get serious about it in bursts. Like we'd sit down and we'd get together and hang out for an entire weekend and Perspectrum would be all we did. We'd Perspectrum yeah. eat and sleep and that was it. And, uh, we did that a few times. Um, we've been treating it more like a job here recently cause we're not in school, but it's still, right. I mean, I, so I ran into a bug. We're we're near the end of the game, but uh, here. So it's releasing this summer sometime. But I had a deadline uh, yesterday, and I ran into a bug that was crashing the game every time you entered one of the dungeons. And I spent thirty hours working on it over like two days. No, thirty. I don't know, but like wow. a, a ridiculous amount of time. All I did was like play for Spectrum and eat, and got not as much sleep as I'd like, and. Uh, yeah, but that's what it takes, yeah. right? So yeah, and so I was having to play for Spectrum, work on for Spectrum, all this, making sure all the everything worked. It was very frustrating, but like it's rewarding. But yeah, you know, that's kind of how it went. You know, it'd be every once in a while we would do these huge bursts of development. Yeah. So now that you're like on the other side, you've you're coming out the other side of right, development yeah. hell. What advice would you give to people making their own games? Because I'm sure. There's plenty of people out there that have ideas in their head, but maybe just don't know how to get started or maybe are stuck in development hell like you once were. So um, I think time management is something I was bad at. Uh, I think it would have been better if I had a schedule. And I did at several different points, but I would always abandon it. I have a schedule of time that you're going to work on your game instead of just like getting lost in it and burning out like I have been. Um, yeah, some, some like... Uh structure and organization would go a long way right and i also um and this is advice i i am 100 percent. i don't know if i'm going to follow my own schedule advice but this is advice i'm 100 percent going to follow on any of my future games uh which is have a game design document that's something so simple that we didn't do until like a year and a half into the game maybe maybe a little less than a year and a half but far into the game we just didn't have a game design document we were just kind of playing around designing stuff and, so uh, what would you put in that document? Is that essentially your like game Bible? Like every yeah. So um, you would put what what first of all what kind of game it is because uh the type of game perspective was changed several times. It was a skilled platformer for a while. It was a Mega Man clone at one point. Those were all very early in development. But like I wrote code for all those, and that's kind of stupid because now I I just kind of wasted all that time. Whereas if we'd sat down and like maybe very lightly prototyped and like figured out a game design document, I would have saved myself a ton of time. Right. So we kind of you know, have a game design document and stick to it. And then I would also say, other than prototyping, before you write a single line of code, I would have every, I would have a list of every mechanic you want your game to have. Um, and maybe even design every single, every room your game is going to have. Because 
When you say design, you mean it could be as simple as just drawing it out on paper, right? Right. That That is what I mean, is draw it out on paper. And maybe that's not going to be your final design, but having a ton of stuff programmed and then going back and designing around what I've programmed was frustrating. And uh, we ended up abandoning that and um, not abandoning that. We did some dungeons that way. And then the later dungeons we designed fully. And then I programmed while someone else was building. So like I was programming the mechanics in while someone else was building the dungeon under the assumption that the mechanic would work <laughs> instead of designing under the constraints of what I'd already made mechanically. And it right. just made, no, but like, it made better dungeons. Right. But that's, yeah, that's just how it has to go. Like a lot of, I, I read into AAA gaming development because I think it's fascinating. Like uh, for God of War, for example, like development was super modular, modularized. People were working on different components not knowing if the other components even worked and like kind of just mushing it all together in the end. Right. But that's the smart way to do it because if something, I don't know that, that put me one that put me in a position where I'm not allowed to fail code wise. I'm not allowed to just walk away. If something is frustrating me. Right. It holds everyone accountable because if you fail, it brings everyone else down. Right. And I just, I don't know. It was more fun that way. I think because I hate design. I don't enjoy it. Very much. Um, I think we did a good job of it. I, I think Katie is better than me at it, though. Uh, Katie and Gabby both, maybe. But uh, I don't enjoy doing it as much as I enjoy programming. So that let them go. And they, you know, nobody's waiting for anybody else. They can design as much as they want. And I can sit down and program everything. And we're all happier because we're all doing the things we like doing. Right. So just um, getting back to your team for a moment. So this game was made by what two developers originally uh, two uh, yeah. so the and, team was me and jake originally and jake for personal reasons he had to leave the team and the game went on ice for uh, a couple months and then i picked up gabby and it was me and gabby for a very long time okay and then eventually uh jonathan joined the team to do music uh jordan became our publisher as vandalia softworks and uh, finally, Katie joined the team to help us with design because we were on major crunch. And okay, that- so all in all, a very lean team. Yeah, definitely. There, there was like no overhead. Everyone had like their very important job to do. And if that job didn't go through, then like a core aspect of the game would just be gone. Right. All of a- Every single one of us had to wear uh, multiple hats, I would say, except maybe Katie, who was pretty much just design. Okay. Uh, cause I, I had to do design programming and, uh, I don't know. I give advice on art. I don't do any of it. Right. You also, I mean, this is your, yeah, it's my baby. Game, like, yeah. So you're kind of like the director Definitely, as well. Yeah. And I also did some marketing for a while, I guess, but I was terrible at that. So I'm not inclined to really count it. Gabby has been art design and, uh, recently she's been doing some sound effects, which have been pretty good. And she's also, she's changed some code, which I was impressed with because she's changed some pretty horrendous code I've wrote, or she's utilized it. She didn't change it, but she's utilized some pretty difficult to understand code that I wrote, not assuming anyone else was ever going to read it. And I was very right. impressed. And, uh, Jordan is doing, he's handling the business side of things, you know, all the business stuff with steam he's doing, um, marketing he's doing press releases and stuff it's a, it's a ton that he's doing and i'm really thankful for that because it scares me so something i just uh considered 
are are these people working for you or is this game largely a volunteer effort so um katie is a volunteer everyone else is being paid in some way uh i'm not going to talk percentages or anything on here but it's all i was just curious yeah it's all money coming from the game except katie who is a volunteer but yeah there's um i'm not paying anybody out of pocket or anything none of that's happening uh that's pretty remarkable that like you were able to i mean granted like they're mostly your friends and stuff but like you guys were able to like put something together without like any guarantee of like monetary compensation that's the thing though um this has largely been an educational venture for all of us too um we were all very i mean i was a freshman in college when i started this project so we were all very inexperienced and uh I've seen all of us grow, like looking at the old Gabby's old art is, you know, it's kind of funny almost compared to the stuff she's doing now, which is just remarkable. Yeah. It's been incredibly valuable. It's been a huge adventure for us. You know, Katie, Katie's on the team because she wanted the experience doing design and we're all having fun with it too. Um, you know, when we're not crunching. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know that there's going to be any money in it but even if there isn't i would consider the project a success at least for me uh and i think the rest of the team would too just because we took the, took away this experience and made something that we enjoyed you know even if just our friends enjoy playing it that's enough for us i think that's awesome um just getting more into the technical side of things for people that are interested in that uh what tools did you use to make the game ah uh, on the art side a lot probably um I think she uses Piskel. Um, Jake used Photoshop some. Gabby uses GIMP some. Uh, on the code side, it's all written in Java uh, with a framework called LibGDX. So it's an engine I made myself using LibGDX as a framework, uh, which is why it was so easy to release on Linux, Mac, and Windows. Let's see. We used Audacity for sound a lot of the time. I don't know what other uh, software Jonathan used. Um, and I rolled up my own level editor in libgdx to build all of our levels with. And other than that, it's like pen and paper, uh, Trello for tasks. Awesome. So I, I guess that's a thing to note. Like that wasn't all too many tools. Like that was none of that cost any money except Photoshop. like half a dozen tools, you know? So like for people that really want to make games and like Connor said, like most of that was free. The tools are definitely out there and there's guides out there to teach you too. So if you're motivated enough, you can you you can jump in and kind of just teach yourself these things. Right. Let's talk about the release of the game. So it's coming out this summer, you said. This summer, yeah. Um, we don't have a solid release date yet. I'm still squishing some bugs, and uh, we have to handle like the business side of things a little bit. So I'm not ready to release or to announce a release date here. Uh, but I would say in the next few weeks, we'll probably have one. Okay. Nice. So is, so is summer, I know like this is a thing with game developers all the time. Do you really think you'll hit the summer 2018 timeframe or do you, is there a chance that it might get pushed? I really think we're going to hit the summer 2018 timeframe. We're very near, you know, we're content complete. We're just decorating, polishing and handling business things. Nice. That's, that's good to hear. So you mentioned it's coming to steam, right? Right. It's coming to steam. Uh, and I believe uh vandalia is also putting it on itch.io and game jolt so if you want it drm free you'll have those options nice 
any investigations or considerations for console ports yet, or is that not uh, a priority? So, <laughs> um, we're trying to reach a wider... So I'm just going to kind of roll this question into trying to reach a wider audience, I think. Uh, okay. If that's okay with you. Sure. So console ports, not really. The game is written in Java, which doesn't run on any consoles. So I would basically have to sit down and fundamentally rewrite all the code in the game to get it on console. Right. And that's a, that's a pretty Herculean task considering I don't know how big the audience is going to be. Uh, it'll be something we're maybe willing to talk about if the game has a big enough audience, but um, I don't imagine Perspectrum's not going to take a very good computer to run. I don't think it's not super resource intensive. Right, the shaders are the most taxing part, I'm assuming. Right, and uh, it can run on integrated graphics and stuff. And it runs. It can run in a software renderer. I've not really seen any laptops that get lower than 30 frames per second on Perspectrum, and I've seen some pretty bad laptops running it. That's another thing. What uh, frame rate are you targeting for this game? 60? Yeah, it, t- it usually runs at 60, but it's playable at 30, if that's all you can get. Okay. It's still very playable. But yeah, it plays locked at sixty usually. Or I think I think LibGDX automatically locks to your refresh rate on your computer. So that's gotcha. Worth okay. Um, uh, and there won't be any bugs related to that. I have I have investigated all of that. Nice. And just uh, looking a little bit into the future, uh, it might still be early to think about this kind of stuff. But are there any plans for downloadable content or? Any De- definitely plan- not planning on doing DLC right now. Updates, yes. Uh, bug fixes and stuff. And um, yeah, little things like bug fixes might come in updates. Uh, no DLC planned. I think it would take a gotcha. pretty big... Uh, it would take a pretty big community to get me to make DLC for Perspectrum. I'm kind of ready to put a bow on it and sell a complete product. Right. Okay, that's understandable. Um, Connor, is there anything else you want to say about Perspectrum? Uh if you uh now's the time so uh it's coming soon follow us um we have a website perspectrumgame.com uh we have perspectrum game on facebook twitter and instagram uh we do screenshot saturday every week um if you reach out to us we'll talk to you uh, i think that's that's about it uh hope you enjoy the game have you decided on a price yet we have not okay so that's that's coming. Yeah, that is coming. All right. Um, yeah, guys, definitely check out Perspectrum. Connor here is the most passionate person I've ever met when it comes to making games. So I'm very confident in saying that it's going to be a very, uh, very enjoyable experience. So check it out. All right. Our next topic is going to be timeless games. So games that don't age... And that could be either be graphically or gameplay-wise. I found, personally, at least, that games that try to have a realistic graphical style age very, very quickly. So much so that they just straight up look ugly in four to five years. Whereas games that go for a more unique art style that isn't sort of confined by the technical ceiling of the time where it was released. The art style there is more enduring. But we can also discuss... Uh, the timelessness of various gameplay elements and stuff like that. So I just kind of wanted to bring that up and 
uh, kick off that discussion with you guys. Right. So uh, the first game that comes to my mind when I think of a timeless game is uh, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, uh, because they're just a couple of choices they made art style wise. That game, like I know they released an HD version of it, but frankly, they could have, you know, upscaled that game and released it again today. And nobody, you know, people would have been none the wiser. Like it, it just looks so good. You can run that in an emulator at 1080p and it could be a game released this year. Right, and that's due to the sort of cartoony visuals, the cel-shaded graphics. Right, and uh, that's not the only way to do it, because I think the same is pretty much true of, like, Super Mario 64, or not 64, Super Mario Sunshine, Super Mario Galaxy. Those games look good today if you upscale them. They look very good. It's just... Uh, 64, not so much, though, because... uh, 64, yeah. And 64, and 64 games as a whole, not so much, I would say. Yeah, you had to reach a certain poly count before um, before games started becoming timeless, I think. Right. But like a lot of Super NES games could be scaled up uh, because they had, you know, they had a handle on pixel art by then. That's right. Um, so other than just art style, are there any sort of gameplay elements you would call timeless? Uh, like... I can easily think of gameplay elements that aren't timeless, such as, you know, let's say the 3D platformer that sort of just became like tired over time. And just now we're seeing a little resurgence. Yeah. So I think I don't think that any gameplay element is not timeless. I think it's more that they get done to death and people get sick of them. So. You know, I don't really think like like you can make a 3D platformer now and people are into it and they're not like nobody's calling Super Mario Odyssey a retro game. Right. That's true. So I think I think element wise, most games are timeless. There are like certain things that make your game very dated. For instance, the score system in Mega Man dates that game hard. Whereas like the platforming and stuff is not dated like Mega Man 1 is just a good game today as it was then. It's just like. The scoring system doesn't really need to be there. It doesn't do anything. The only reason it was there was because that was what you did in games at the time. But as we move forward in time, I think people's expectations of what a video game is obviously changes. And then that, I think it's more the perception that changes than anything else rather than the actual quality of the game. Uh, People just want to play different things and get tired of certain things. And that's why we see certain styles of gameplay and genres of games die out. Right. So, like, you have those muddy brown first-person shooters of, like, the mid to late 2000s, right? Right. Like, that's dated as hell. Yeah, you don't really see that anymore. I And I remember there was, like, almost an overcorrection a little bit after that where every shooter I saw was, like, saturated with color and, like, you know, like, Overwatch is bright and colorful and... Killzone Shadowfall, when it was revealed for, like, the PS4 launch, was super colorful in sharp contrast to all the other Killzone games on PlayStation, so. But I think we're in a good place now when it comes to just color palette in general. Right, I agree. I I just think, like, that's the kind of thing, like, you can look at, like, third-person adventure games were the early 2000s, you know? You have your, like, kind of, like, following Zelda a little bit. Like, you have, uh, Lost my train of thought. Uh, Shadow of the Colossus, is that what it's called? Like, yes. Games in that vein, you kind of had a lot of for a while. And like Grand Theft Auto, or kind of third-person adventure. 
So Shadow of the Colossus does something interesting with its art style that I don't really see in a lot of games, and I kind of would like to see more. It's the same thing I think Breath of the Wild does, where it just has stretches of complete emptiness. And I think that sort of negative space is, when it, when done right, it can be a very sort of evocative element of a game. Like, it, it, it gives you time to, like, reflect, especially in a game like Shadow of the Colossus, where at a certain point you realize what you're doing is not exactly heroic and that you're essentially a terrible person. Like, just having that long period, that long stretch of land with essentially nothing going on and just really kind of gives you a feeling of loneliness, I think is important for games like that. Right. I think, I don't know. I think that's part of what makes a timeless game is that it has a real, I don't want to say that a lot of games don't have art direction, but like saying I want it to look muddy and realistic. That's not really like as, as profound an art direction as like, Wind Waker had or Shadow of the Colossus had where they're yeah, like, like these games commit 100% to it right they have like they have something style. they want you to see they're not like I don't know their art is part of the game not so much means to an end like Call of Duty has visuals because you have to see what you're shooting whereas Wind Waker and uh, Shadow of the Colossus want you to feel something from their visuals if that makes sense right clearly I would say um well, actually, I wouldn't. I was going to say Dark Souls, but like from an art perspective, it's not exactly. Matt, Dark the Souls most looks a timeless. little dated these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will. Okay, for if if I were to give it to a from game though, I would give it to Bloodborne. I would say that Bloodborne's art style is very distinct, and I wouldn't say timeless yet because it's only been a few years. But we'll see if it stands the test of time. So, yeah, yeah. So, Mike, do you have any comments on timeless games or what you think makes a timeless game? Well, uh, good control schemes make timeless games because if your game controls great for the time and you come back for to the game like 20, 10, 20 years later and the game's controls just suddenly don't work anymore. Yeah, I think that's a lot of why Shadow of the Colossus needed a remaster. Yeah, the, yeah. Even UIs can do that. And like a lot of old NES games, like their their buttons like buttons just weren't responsive enough and that really dates the games and makes them hard to go back and play these days. They although they did that a lot for for reasons. Like they had legitimate reasons for making their controls as bad as possible. Right. Because the longer someone would play the game, they wouldn't have they wouldn't be able to rent it. They would have to buy the game. Right. Disney did this a lot because back well, in Disney the day, was that arbitrary difficulty, like yeah, in the they Lion King, arbitrary bit difficulty to their game, so people couldn't rent it. They'd have to buy the game to actually finish it. Right, but yeah, I think I don't know. When I think of a timeless game, it can't be like a game that has yearly releases. None of those are timeless to me. Yeah. Like it releases every, every Assassin's Creed is very dated to me. Every Call of Duty is. Very I feel like dated. someone would make a case for Call of Duty Modern for Modern Warfare just because it sort of reshaped the FPS genre. Modern Warfare is timeless. I I could make that case. It yeah, was one of those like, games that. Well, really here's the thing. Would you? Would, so I guess this is the question. Would you right now pick up Call of Duty Four and play online for fun? Oh yeah, I definitely would. If I played online back in the time, but I, yeah, I would. 
I okay. um well I think that's the question you got to ask if you if, if you really want to know if a game is timeless can you pick it up and like play it today the same as you did when it came out and not feel like anything was you know updated or yeah yeah I think Maple Story is probably timeless uh you know that's pretty much know, the same that. game now it was on release it's changed quite a bit I mean it's changed quite a bit but it is timeless like they could release like if Maple Story released tomorrow and it was the game it was when it released, other than the fact that you can't do high resolution, I think it would be fine. Funnily enough, people I are get- still playing Call of Duty Four online. <clears throat> well, that's probably a lot. A lot of that's attributed to the fact that they just did a remastered version of that game. Well, this is the original yeah, that's game. True. This isn't the remastered. Hmm. So I don't know. Based off of what the short conversation we had seems to me that like art style is a very important if not the most important component in making a game timeless like if the art style isn't timeless then i don't think the game can be yeah i agree with that all right okay let's just move on to the next topic which i think mike wants to talk about steam sales so do you want to take it mike so with the steam sale in full swing i feel like we should take a moment or two to go about our worst impulse buys during a Steam sale. I'll, I'll kind of start us off with what I just bought Well, you were interviewing Connor. I was looking through the Steam sale. It's like, oh, GTA Five's on sale. Oh. So I went up and bought GTA Five. Already regretting on my it? my PC. I'm not regretting it yet. I mean, I've already played a lot of GTA Five, so I mean, <laughs> might as well. So did you already have GTA? And I also bought something else. No, I had it on PS4. Okay, but I let someone borrow it and I no longer have it. Uh, I also bought the Criminal Enterprise Starter Pack, so I paid thirty dollars for this game. That was a mistake. It, it was a mistake. Uh, yeah, I've made some bad impulse buys. So I don't know if I can completely relate because I don't play too many games on Steam, but I've definitely bought games on psn that i regret buying especially because like i feel like whenever i whenever there's like a psn sale like a flash sale like everything's super cheap so you just like load up your cart and then you just end up spending way more money than you anticipated spending yeah you you buy like you buy like one or two games they're all five dollars and then all of a sudden you're at sixty dollars you just spent sixty dollars on games you'll probably never touch yeah right and they do a really good job of just getting you you know like it's a good psychological trick you're like i'll i'll never play that game and then like suddenly it's at a very affordable price and it's like oh i heard good things about it might as well get it and you buy it and then you never touch it uh because they got you with that that um the sweet spot this you know like the five to ten dollar range yeah i I don't think um i don't have a ton of regrets on uh games i've bought um I would say my biggest one is probably I'm trying to make sure it's not one I bought in a humble bundle because then I probably wouldn't actually regret it. It's um it's probably got to be like who's your daddy? <laughs> what is Why that? Why do you regret that? It's just a stupid game like it was fun for a couple minutes. I don't remember how much I paid for it. Probably not much, but it's like a multiplayer game where one person plays as the dad and one person plays as the baby and the baby's trying to kill itself and the dad's trying to keep the baby alive. Jesus. 
Oh, I've heard of this game. Okay. And yeah. it's like fun for a couple minutes, but like, I don't know. If I paid any more than $5 for it, I wasted money. Yeah. Oh, wait. Really. Okay. So I have an extremely regrettable purchase, but it wasn't on a sale. I oh. paid full price for 1 2 Switch. Oh. oh. You made a terrible mistake. I know. That's I felt gross. gross. Yeah. I felt gross afterwards it's just that like there's a certain thing about when a console comes out i will literally buy any kind of trash to to make sure i have a library like yeah, regardless of how bad it is which is really bad i shouldn't do that but i am um, I, I don't know i don't i, I just kind of want to talk about steam sales now too i think i'm with you mike but like sure uh, I, so this might be more me and Mike than you, Ahmed, but like, do you feel like Steam sales have really lost their magic here recently? It was the removal of flash sales that really got me. That getting up every four hours to see what was on sale and possibly impulse buy something. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt that my backlog is huge, but yeah, I don't, I don't check Steam every couple hours anymore. I'm not excited for the sales. I just kind of like you just kind of first... look like oh. They brought discoverability up, though, so I could just look through Steam, and sometimes my discovery queue is full of trash games. Yeah. Like, real bad asset flips, and I consider buying them. Yeah, <laughs> just I just... to make fun of them. I don't know. Like, it's just not fun to look through it anymore. Like, I don't feel pressured to buy anything. And I'm, I'm very... Um, I would even go as far as to say I'm cheap. It's very difficult to part me with my money. And, uh... I kind of hate that the Steam sales aren't good enough to do that anymore because I just end up not buying games. And like every once in a while, I would impulse buy something and have a pretty good time. And I'm I just don't anymore. Steam and I found a game called Panty Party. Uh oh. <laughs> there is no anti in this game. Oh, good. But yeah, you know, uh, they just kind of used. It's just it just doesn't hold the magic it used to hold. I used to like get excited months ahead of the Steam sale, and I just don't care anymore. Um, yeah, like I can definitely kind of attest to the fact that a few years ago, the steam sale was like a legendary, the steam summer sale was like a legendary event, you know, like everyone was anticipating it. Like it was talked about everywhere. And I feel like by comparison this year, at least 2018, it's just kind of gone by without much commotion. Yeah. I'd like to see the numbers. I think the sales are just as steep as they used to be. I think the people saying that the sales aren't as good yeah. just because they, they lost the flash sale, I think they're wrong. I'm pretty sure the games go just as cheap. They just do it for longer. And I get the reasoning. Like, people, they don't want people, like, having to check Steam at work and stuff to risk, you know, that or risk missing out. But I just, I miss, I don't know. I had fun with it, and I think I still would. I'm kind of sad it's gone. That's a pretty cool feature. I didn't know they used to do that. Yeah, you used to be able to vote on sales, and like it would be a big deal, like because like you would feel like if you if the game you voted on won, like you're pretty much obligated to buy it at that point, right? You know, right? I have participated in like Steam bundles when they like they do like fundraisers for various organizations that if you donate a certain amount, you get like all of these games. I've done that a few times, and I think that's good because the games are cheap and the money's going to a good cause. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still like, I, I guess humble bundles kind of fit in here too. They're not as good as they used to be. I still eye those, but it's been a really long time since I've bought a humble bundle. Humble monthly. Great service though. Oh yeah. Humble monthly is a, a good bargain. I don't I have it, but I'm probably, monthly. I've kind but, of accidentally intentionally forgot that I had a subscription. So for, what is humble monthly? Humble monthly is like 12 bucks a month. 
Yeah, think, twelve bucks a month, and you get and you get a ton of games, a ton of games, yeah. Just for that, like they gave Destiny two out for Humble Monthly yeah. one month. Oh wow! This okay, year, yeah. this month's hum- Humble Bundle, Humble Monthly is, uh, what are these games? Hearts of Iron, four, Black Wake, and Portal Knights, which are all, I can attest, those are all pretty big. Not Hearts games. of Iron is a fun game. Like it's usually hundreds of dollars worth of games a month you're getting for like twelve. Bucks. Like the first three games, the that's first crazy. the three games that are getting are coming out early are a total of about eighty dollars, and that's twelve bucks. I got Ark Survival Evolved yeah. way earlier on in its lifespan for twelve bucks. Yeah, it's very cool what Humble Monthly does. Like last month when so. I got Destiny Two, it was two hundred and two dollars worth of games. So was Humble Monthly a thing before Game Pass? Yes. Humble yes. Monthly's been a thing for a while. It's interesting. Yeah, like see, monthly, you don't lose the games when you yeah, stop paying you either. Like, they're, they're oh, that's extra. that's pretty huge. Yeah. So if you like the games just for one month, yeah, you can just buy that month, and you're getting all yeah, those games you just for twelve months. Yeah, that's definitely like a distinct positive over and, there. And you're getting Steam on Xbox and PlayStation. You get the games that are early unlocks first, and then at the end of the month, they give you that month's game. The rest of that month's games get revealed. So it's kind of you're kind of gambling on what the rest of the bundle is going to be. But at least you get the three big tickets or the big ticket game, right? And and it's a good way to yeah. discover games too. Like, yeah, it was June they gave out Destiny two. Uh, and you said they May. stopped doing it, huh? Did you say no. they stopped doing it? No, yeah. Humble Monthly's still going on. Oh, okay. Yeah, in May they gave out Dead Rising four, Kerbal Space Program, and Ruiner. It's just crazy the kind of games they yeah, give out. Point they gave out Mafia and Deus Ex. Total Warhammer was one. Back in March 2017, XCOM 2. Steam's like providing plenty of incentives to both subscribe to that and keep people on Steam. Yeah. Because I know a lot of people, this generation especially, uh, we've been seeing some movement to consoles. So it's it's interesting to see like uh, Steam come up with these various models to try and combat the move to console. I'm trying to think, like, when when were these put into place? What? I don't Years know. Ago? Uh, November yeah, Humble Monthly's been around a long time. Okay, so, like, that's a couple years after this gen started, so that actually kind of makes sense that they were trying to combat the move to console with more incentives. And they've also, they've also done, like, Nintendo bundles. It's great. Like, they had a Nini bundle, which was all, like, Nintendo indies. That's crazy. Because I wouldn't expect to see Nintendo anything on anything other than a Nintendo system. Yeah, it was wild. Humble Bundle has uh, a lot going on. Plus, they're owned by IGN now, I think? They are owned by IGN now. Yeah, I saw that. That's kind of weird. So they have so much more money to throw around. Yeah, and they have a lot of connections. Yeah. Alright, so as always, we end the show by talking about what we've been playing. Uh, Who wants to go first? Uh, I've been playing a lot of uh, a little indie game called uh, Perspectrum. Oh, dear God. <laughs> um, it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's not too long, but uh, I don't know. I think what's there is really, it's a good value. Um, it's not available to the public yet, but I think the moment it is, you guys should all check it out. It's very good. Um, that's all I really have to say about it, though. I haven't had time to play any other games. All right, that's fair. What about you, Mike? So, uh, I got roped into an MMO. Oh, jeez. Again? Uh, no, you, you this did, one was... You got uh, roped last week. Well, last week, I actually broke myself into this. This time, a co-worker broke me into Final Fantasy XIV. 
Oh, oh I've, I've actually heard, been heard really good things about it. It's not bad. I just picked the wrong class because I'm playing as a healer, and grinding with a healer is <sighs> awful. Did you pay for it? No, Did I'm on the free trial right too? now. Okay, I was going to say, because if you paid for two MMOs in two weeks, we'd have to have a, a long talk. <laughs> I'm about to pay for two MMOs in two weeks. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not bad. It's one of the big three, so there's not much I can say about it that you don't already know. But the fact that you could be any class on one character and freely switch oh, between really? them is probably the best thing ever. Like, if I want to suddenly That's be a healer, cool. I can swap to healer. No, no restrictions. Or if I want to like play a DPS, I can just actively swap to DPS and not care. But do you, do you like have to level up the classes you individually? Do have to level or? them up individually. Okay, that makes sense. That's fair. But right now they have like an experience boost where all the experience is doubled. So that's cool. Like I've been I'm playing just... like three days, like an hour. What are like the system day. requirements on that game? I can't. Like, is it is it really pretty? Like, could I run it on a laptop that's not for gaming? Laptop. I think okay. I run it on high laptop settings. Because hmm. they have okay. separate settings for it. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I might have to look into it myself because I've been interested. Is, does it charge a monthly subscription cost? Yes, or? and you also have to buy it. Oh, yeah, big time. It. You have to buy it for it's like 30 40 bucks, And then you have Jeez. to pay the subscription after the first So do you have to buy it? to The subscription's play? like 15 bucks yeah. a month, right? Jeez, okay, yeah, there's no way I would pay that to play an MMO. It's not bad. It's very high high bar high barrier yeah that's a huge barrier to entry like the game would have to be amazing i'd say it's like, but to be fair i've heard that it is amazing yeah but comparing that game to like know. humble monthly like yeah yeah I, I pay a lot of a lot of money per month <laughs> i need an intervention but the game is really worth a look at the free trial is 14 days so not bad yeah check it out if you're interested in an mmo and you've gotten bored of the standard fare uh, if you want to find me, I'm probably somewhere on the Exodus server. Somewhere. Okay. And it's cross-play between PS4 and again. PC. They both share the same servers. Oh, really? Nice. That's we cool. Should, maybe we should all check it out together sometime. For 14 days. Yeah, I'll for probably 14 days. For and then we'll have to seriously think <laughs> about what we've done. Unless I recruit a new character. Alright, so I have been playing... Hollow Knight still, but I can't talk about that due to the <laughs> rules I imposed on this podcast. But just a quick update. I'm over 30 hours in and it's absolutely spectacular. Jeez, I didn't know the game was that long. It is, especially if you want to do everything, which That's I am unreal. doing. But other than that, uh, oh. last weekend, I played the original Mario Party for the N64. <laughs> How and, that game, and that game is an absolute, it's just you like an assault on all of your senses. Yeah. And it, it, and emotions and psych, <laughs> psyche, like that game. I'm hundred percent sure has destroyed like friendships, relationships in the past. Like <laughs> it's way more brutal than every other Mario Party that comes after it. So, Did like, you get the glove, Hamid? No, I didn't. But here's the thing. So like in this game, like unlike the all of the other Mario Parties, like positions can change like in the snap of a finger like you can be in first place and then suddenly fall to fourth within a span of a turn because really? because of mechanics like uh boo or whatever right you can steal like three stars from someone in a turn you know it's oh just like gosh. ridiculous like but it's like to, to be fair it's like random right like it's like a random roll but like if you get unlucky you just get absolutely destroyed 
And like this actually, it's really funny because it was like the last turn and my friend was in the lead, right? And my other friend, he he got like the, he landed on the question mark. So he did like a roll. So like the roll has three components, like one slot for a player, a middle slot dictating like what action will be taken and then the slot for the second player. So he rolled like the middle slot, which was an arrow pointing to him. So like the or the person would have to give something to the person in the second slot. He rolled himself for the second slot, right? And then he rolled like three stars and rolled the person in first place. Oh, so like no. he just like instantly got like all the stuff and the other person just rage quit hard. He like turned off the console. He's like, we're not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's so funny though, like because. Not only that, the mini games are just like mind numbing because like so many of them are just like tap A as fast as you can. Yeah. So your muscles just like seize up and like stop functioning after a while. Make sure you wear <laughs> gloves because those controls. Yeah, this game really will is ruin just your like. Palms. So, would you recommend it or not? No, I totally would. It's so much fun, but it's <laughs> just like just be sure like you're physically and emotionally prepared for it. Yeah, that's all I'll say. But yeah. Uh, so that's what I've been playing. So thank you guys for listening. Once again, please check out Perspectrum when it comes out this summer. Connor's poured his heart and soul into it and, uh, you'll love it or your money back. Uh, <laughs> wow. Nah, Steam's pretty generous with refunds, but, uh, let's all set it all that out. Though. But give him your money. Come on. Yeah. Look at the guy. He needs like a sandwich or two. <laughs> Granted, you can't see him, but, like, he's he's a pretty skinny dude. This is an audio-only podcast. What are you doing? Yeah, dude, I'm a starving game developer. Yeah, he needs, right. he needs some food. Well, anyways, thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you next week. See ya.